as an infantryman, I bleed green and I bleed grunt. And if I can't shoot, can't drive, can't deploy, that's my career. That's where it lies for me. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be Mind good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connects him There's to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Corporal Matthew Williams, OAM, is currently serving in the Australian Army. Willie, as he's better known, had his 21st birthday on deployment to Afghanistan. On his 22nd birthday, he received a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer. But he never gave up the fight. He started what's become a hugely popular Instagram page, Willie Beating Cancer, documenting his journey of physical and mental health as he fights his illness, increases awareness of it, and raises research money for it. I interviewed Willie in 2018 in the post-season two bonus episode, A Journey of Resilience with Matt Williams. Mentally keeping yourself stable is incredibly hard. And I've had times when I've 100% felt myself slipping. Be sure to listen to that podcast for his full backstory, including a lot more on his military service. It's been a couple of years since that original conversation and a lot has happened for Willie since. So I brought him back on the show for an update. Willie, welcome back to Life on the Line. Hey, thank you so much for having me. We were just discussing before that first one was a real eye-opener for me because it was when my Instagram, I guess, started taking off and everything was still so raw for me. But look, it's great to be back and I'm a listener, I'm a avid listener anyway of the show and love seeing the success this is having. So I'm honoured to be back. It was actually, I think, me that hit you up like, hey, can I, can I come back on please at some point? <laughs> Oh, it's absolute pleasure to have you back on, mate. And as we we're chatting before we started recording, I knew we'd had that chat sort of soon after your Instagram page lifted off. But what you point out to me, what I wasn't aware of was just how close it was to you actually receiving that diagnosis. And the fact it was your first podcast and look at you now and how fa- well, to get onto some of your fame and how you're here, there and everywhere. But I, had, I just hadn't quite appreciated how early in that journey we had that first chat. Mm, it, it was very early. And I think it was almost a bit of a time capsule for how this journey's changed. Um, if you were to listen to a podcast or this podcast and then that one, you'd see a massive difference in attitude and growth and whatever. But, you know, I was a pretty young, savage grunt at the time who just received this news. And I, I think I still... I wasn't fully accepting of it at that point either. And it was, yeah, definitely a a different outlook on plenty of things at that time. But yeah, now, you know, I'm sitting in my own podcast studio and I run my own show. And then I was, you know, had my old laptop sitting there with you in the kitchen of my old, my old share house with other diggers. (laughs) And you're like, oh, can you find some headphones? And I'm like, oh, maybe, mate, (laughs) let me run around. Very lucky thing that I'm able to do, I guess now we'd be two years apart. Yeah, pretty much. And we'll get back to a bit later in the chat. I want to talk more about that sort of change in mental outlook and what that's looking like now and the show you're doing. The fact I'm looking at a video of you over Zoom in your studio and because I do an audio podcast, whereas you've got a video show, your setup looks much more polished and pro than mine does now. So it'll be good to catch up on that. But I want to bring us back in time for 
anyone who's, say, just gone back and listened to that first interview for sake of argument, where we finished off there. And we recorded that just in the lead up to your first major tire flipping event as we were helping promote that cause. So can we wind back the clock to that point in 2018, talk about that event, you were raising awareness of brain cancer and raising money for research. And it ended up being a massive event and the first of many tire flips nationwide. So can you tell us how all that unfolded? I think basically the easiest place to go back is to where the lostness I had with, you know, my diagnosis, I didn't have uh, sort of the purpose in life was sort of taken away and I'm not a bucket list sort of guy. Talking to a psychologist, he was, Will, you need a purpose. You need some purpose to wake up in the morning and a purpose to be living and doing stuff, like just shit, just random stuff. And that purpose became, I guess, at the time, raising money for something bigger than myself and a bit of a legacy. Now, yeah, I started thinking about events I could do and literally all I wanted to do was raise $1,000, which was the target, the original target, and flip a tyre from Largs Bay Jetty to Semaphore Jetty in Adelaide, which is two kilometres on the beach as a group. It was a bit of a two-pronged offence. One prong, I had to get my platoon down there and flip the tyre. Then it was also, well, if we do beach PT, we'll all go out for brekking, it'll be a morning off work for the boys. <laughs> so I'm looking out for the ads um, but then it ended up in the first week i guess you know it's a bit of a slow start went through that target and then just kept going and I, I can't remember off the top of my head how much we made on that first tire flip but it was in the tens of thousands and i think it was more like 60 or seventy thousand dollars, something like that yeah and we ended up running i think it was 23 events in australia and around the world everywhere in sydney and melbourne and running tire flips in the following weeks and then there was two in afghanistan at two separate bases and then one in iraq the guy those pilots in france did one down there runway some rescue helicopter pilots did one it's just some incredible ones a group of anti-poachers somewhere in africa part of their training because they're being run by british and australian special forces and one of the training like pt days was oh we're doing willie's tire flip and they sent me a video of these these local guys you know with ak-47s on their back and whatever flipping tires out looking after you know white rhino somewhere and i'm like jesus this really took off and i you know, i say the money because the money is something that shows a figure. But I think the influence and overall impact we had in teaching people and teaching myself and everything about this was far, far more valuable than the money represented. And just on that, mate, I do remember you telling me in the first chat and in all the promotional material around the flips and your Instagram posts at the time, some surprising statistics about brain cancer because people know how common, say, testicular cancer or breast cancer is and things like that. But before your movement, I had no knowledge of brain cancer. I felt completely ignorant about it. I know I wasn't alone in that. I just want to drive home the importance of that work you did and continue to do through your social media. Can you go over some of those stats about brain cancer and how many people it impacts and that kind of thing? Well, one of the hardest things, I guess, about the statistics with brain cancer, and I guess the reason we don't know them, although that's all ever so common, is because it's a disease that affects the brain. Um, and Charlie Teo, Dr. Teo, was the first one to ever bring this up with me, that brain cancer has very, very few spokesmen because it affects the brain. There's very few people with it that can actually do it. Most of the spokespeople about brain cancer are loved ones after they've passed or loved ones when they can't actually physically speak out about it. It's very, very few. And the survival rates are so short. In Australia, brain cancer is the most deadly disease amongst children, the most deadly cancer for people under 40, yet it's one of the least funded. The five-year survival rate is 20%. Like 20% of people will live past five years with it. On average, that you've got to remember goes across. That's an average amongst different types of brain tumours. Some of those tumours, you know, have a 1% five-year survival rate 
and you know some are a little bit better, but it's yeah, 20%, is 80% mortality rate, I guess, in that five years. Um, and if you look at that 10 years, it, it's barely a statistic worth talking about. So it's one of those really hard ones that's so common, most common in young people, most deadly disease of children, yet we don't really know about it. And it's, it's very poorly funded. With the research being so poorly funded in 30 years, we haven't seen any improvement in life expectancy for people. If you think about pretty much everything, think about 30 years ago, think about the car you're driving. You're lucky for it to have seatbelts. Look at cars now. Look at the treatments and medical advances in 30 years and brain cancer hasn't improved. And that is for two reasons. One, which is probably people thinking of, yeah, it's a very, very complex tumor. It's not a, you know, a tumor on your leg, on your balls. It's something in your brain. But two, it is because of that, it needs funding. And the research, although people might think well, it's been a lost cause. We have found out so much about the brain while researching brain cancers, um, everywhere from learning about PTSD um, and learning about rehabilitation of people with other neurocognitive diseases and acute brain injuries. Yeah, researching anything, you'll find out all this other stuff around the sites. Researching brain cancer is incredibly important for cancer as a whole and brains as a whole. We know very, very little about the brain and very little about other cancers too. It's in a way, on a, I describe, it's like how Audi race cars, well, Audi as a, as a car company, will put all their R&D, all their research and development into their race car so it can filter down into everything else. And this is where I sort of put the pinnacle of cancer, like the special forces of cancer is brain cancers. So if the research goes in there, that trickles down everything else into other cancers everywhere else and a lot of mental health issues and acquired brain injury issues too. It's um, something very close to my heart and something I've become increasingly aware of how important it is. And I've had chats before that if tomorrow I woke up and, oh, Willie, you're tumorless, like you're fine by some miracle, it's still something I'd put a lot of effort into um, raising money for because it is, it is so important. We can only get those kind of medical advancements that we haven't got in brain cancer so far through people speaking out about it, constantly banging the drum. That's how we saw such improvement in funding in breast cancer. Yeah, and breast and testicular cancer at 99% survival rates through research. The marketing for breast cancer particularly is genius. It was fantastic. It's the, I'd say the best marketing ever for anything. And they went from a low survival rate in, and in a matter of years went to a 99% survival rate overall. And that's just fantastic. And I really hope we can see the same thing in, in other areas. That certainly does give us hope moving forward. Let's move on to some of the fun news in your life. There's yeah work and health updates I want to talk about, but there's a few other things first because you're just so damn famous these days. You've been busy raising awareness and that's had a few byproducts. You know, we've seen you obviously busy on social media. You're gone from your first appearance, finding your headphones, chat with me to all over the podcasting world, including your own. You've been on TV multiple times. You're all over the shop, mate. Uh, I try and keep humble about it. Like I don't, I, w I definitely wouldn't say famous if there was a, like a class X celebrity, that'd be me. Someone that someone recognizes the pub who doesn't know them. <laughs> but look, it's, you know, it's been a bloody journey, you know, that, that sort of, you know, growing and being on different shows and talking about everything. It's, um, it's been a, a massive thing for me, being able to sort of spread my wings and, and not only, you know, about cancer research and everything, it's, it's a bloody experience, you know, you're being on TV and you're being asked to come on a podcast. Like someone wants to talk to me for two hours or someone wants to listen to me for a couple of hours, like Jesus. This will sound really bad, but I almost feel like I've sort of made something of myself out of such a shit situation. 
Well, you're not focusing on your mortality. It's not like you've received this diagnosis and are focusing on the end result. You're busy with the journey and living life to the full in the meantime. And I think that's what's so energizing and inspiring to a lot of people that your outlook and focus is ultimately is filled with this positive energy. And that's culminated in quite a few things, just say this year, if we jump right just to 2020, it starts with something a bit more on the formal end when you're a young South Australian of the year nominee. Then COVID-19 hit and changed this year's expectations for a lot of us. And I imagine you'd be in an at-risk category. So how has actually coronavirus impacted you this year? Ah, the bloody Rona. Look, the actual um, research about researching corona is, you know, limited at best. And they've sort of just put a blanket that any, any cancer is high risk. I did a little bit of my own research and a bit of Google doctor, got Dr. Willie, and I actually don't think I'm high risk, but you know, who am I to speak? But, you know, I had um, initially had eight weeks off work, work from home, which work from home infantry is not that much work. I was going to say, what do you get to push-ups in your driveway? or you know, Hide in a bush or something. I had that time, I guess I'll say off. And then I've been back at work for, oh, geez, I don't know, six weeks now. I'm, I'm not really sure. Luckily, I live in South Australia and we haven't had any cases for ages. We've been very lucky. At one point, we were the safest place in the world over here with it. Very small population. You know, we're not very densely populated. And you know, people just all did the bloody right thing. <laughs> and we, we're over it and we can go to the pub now on a Friday and Saturday night. So that, that's our little reward. That's the dream, mate. It's mid-July we're recording this. And in Sydney, we were doing very well for a time. Our cases were all coming from just hotel quarantine. And then we've let some Victorians slip into the state. And now that's unfolding here. But anyway, we'll deal with that later. Yeah, no. Nah, but like, it was a bit of experience. I think with some of this stuff, and people might disagree with this, but in some ways you just have to be sit back and experience it in many ways i've talked about this a little bit in length about how it's such a big turning point for our society and almost be in some ways happy you live through it like it's it's a massive thing it, it will be in 60 years time you know when you speak to someone you know who's 80 90 years old oh yeah in the war and you're like holy fuck you're alive during the second world war like you're alive when you know the germans were dropping bombs on britain like yeah 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 that will be what this will be like in the future. It will be like you're alive through bloody the coronavirus, that pandemic that shut down the world. Like it shut down the world. Oh, it's like the Great Depression. It's like World War II in that, yes, it affects everyone and the whole world is so affected by it. It's amazing. Like, yeah, it's a terrible thing that people's dying. But at some degree, you have to be, holy shit, I'm lucky to be able to, you know, live through this. It'll be, make the most of it. If you're at home doing nothing, Jesus, try and make the most of what you can do anyway. Um, don't just sit there and get fat and lazy because um, it's very easy to do that. Um, people have more time than they've ever had. But, yeah, it's it's not really worth just doing nothing. And I have a friend who's in – well, I shouldn't say a friend. A guy I follow in Belarus at the moment, he got corona and almost died. And he's like a 30-year-old young, really fit dude. And I'm like, oh, shit. I think that really rang at home for me of like, oh, this is a guy like – he's like the pinnacle. And he got stuck in Belarus quarantine and through that. I'm like, well, if you're in Australia, pretty, pretty bloody well off. For sure. It's, yeah, it's not just an old person's thing. We all have to be vigilant. And I didn't know that stat about South Australia being the safest place in the world. So very lucky for you. Well done. I'm going to embarrass you with just a couple more highlights of 2020 before we move on. It's fair to say, because of the Rona, a lot more of us than usual were watching TV this Anzac Day. We could light up the dawn in our driveways all we like, but without the ability to go to formal organized dawn services, we would have, you know, the quick ceremony in the driveway, then nip back inside where it's warm and put the telly on. And anyone watching the national service in Canberra would have seen Prime Minister Scott Morrison's address. And then ScoMo name drops you. Did you expect that? I knew to some degree. When I was on the phone to him, 
a week before. Now, oh, I was, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, I was yeah. for a cocky call. I'm not famous. I was on the phone to the Prime Minister. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know how it sort of all came about. Two or three weeks before Anzac Day, nothing to do with Anzac Day. Scott Morrison's speechwriter, one of, actually follows me on socials. And he hit me up like, hey, Willie, we're putting together a speech about resilience during corona. You've had a lot to do with stuff when you've been isolated, shut down, taken away, everything from you know being in Afghanistan through to you know on chemotherapy, you have to isolate because not corona, but a common cold or flu could kill you. It's a pretty hard thing. And I guess I'm the bloody subject matter expert of it. So he just wanted to talk to me about overall resilience and a message to the public, any tips, whatever. Ended up, me and him spoke for like an hour and a half, just spoke shit. And then I ended up like a week later, a week and a half later, getting a text like, hey, the boss is going to call you today. Just have your phone on you about 10 a.m. And I'm like, the boss? Like, right, no worries. I'm thinking, no, no, his boss is ScoMo. Um, answer the phone, oh, like private numbers. Oh, Corporal Williams, certain case, it's one of the bosses from work. Oh, Willie, it's, it's Scotty. Scotty, Scotty Morrison. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, oh, no. And we spoke for a little bit, you know, just about stuff. And it was brilliant. Right at the end, like, mate, I have to run off to a meeting. You know, it's sitting day in Parliament or whatever. Just so you know, I'm going to mention you on Anzac Day. And I'm like, oh, yep, right. And then that was sort of the end of it. And I thought, you know, a, me- a mention, I don't know what that means. That anywhere from, you know, he's talking to the Chief of Army. He goes, oh, I spoke to Willie through to whatever. And I knew it must have been bigger because on the morning of Anzac Day, with South Australia being half an hour behind everyone, so everyone else's dawn service was half an hour in front of ours. I'm sort of getting ready, putting my suit on to walk out the front, and my phone is just lighting up with messages from people, mainly all the boys taking the piss out of me. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck? Anyway, I'm like, well, no, nah, it's not time for that. Then I leave my phone in. Oh, actually, I would have taken out the Bluetooth, my speaker for the dawn service. Anyway, I'm standing at the front with my neighbours, with my medals and beret on suit. Next thing, I am Corporal Williams, blah, blah, blah. Oh, Jesus, I'm like a big part of this. Australians all, lest we forget those who were so young, who have made us so free. On Anzac Day 1919, the first after the Great War, there were no city marches or parades for the returning veterans because Australians were battling the Spanish flu pandemic. Though our streets were empty, the returning veterans were not forgotten. And our heroes, they still walk amongst us. Corporate Matt Williams will also stand out the front of his home this morning. Willie, as he's known, grew up in Warrnambool and joined the army at 18. He left for induction only two days after finishing high school and spent his 21st birthday on patrol in Kabul. He returned to Australia to discover he had brand cancer. And on Anzac Day in 2018, Willie put on his uniform and his medals and he slipped into his top pocket his first round of chemotherapy tablets. And then he marched, despite feeling weak and nauseous. I spoke to Willie a few days ago. He told me, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. His service had enabled him to live for something bigger than himself. Not me, but we, he said. It's good advice, Willie. Willie is in isolation today because his immune system depends on all of us keeping our distance. He has served us and now we must do the right thing by him and so many more because we're all in this together. And that was, um, for me, incredibly special. I've never needed any recognition for service I've, I've never seeked any recognition for anything honestly but anyone who says it's not nice is bloody lying it made that you know the six years of service i've given so worth it i guess 
he was always being worth it, but it was just like, shit, something so special to me. And from the top and in front of, you know, millions of Australians who were out there and it was a beautiful Anzac day. I really enjoyed the, out in the end of the driveways, you know, a lot of my neighbours were out. You know, I went to the end of my street, faces the Esplanade onto the beach here in Semaphore, and there's a um, aged care facility um, on the beach. Out the front, there was an old guy in a wheelchair with a, like a blanket on, massive rack of World War II medals. And there was a combi van driving down the street with a massive speaker on top of it, playing the last post and dropping off wreaths at houses of known veterans. You know, stopped at the old folks' home. And, you know, walked up to him and he literally like shuffled up to get out of his chair to salute them and gave them a wreath. And that was one of the most special things I've ever seen. And I, in my talk with Scotty after this, once, you know, we can go back to the war memorials and do that, but we need it still live streamed for those who can't make it to a war memorial or those who are with kids in it. So it'll be easier just to go to the end of the driveway. You're paying the same respects. It's not about where you are. It's about paying that respect. You can be standing in the driveway by yourself or in war memorial somewhere with 10,000 people, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. And it was um, a great day. I fully agree, mate. I think it's all about what's in your heart and what you are thinking on at the time on that day than where you physically are. And for me, nothing's going to replace going to a dawn service and seeing the parade, or of course not. But it is fantastic to know that I agree. Yeah, have the live stream on and have the end of the driveway thing happen because they're for various reasons. It won't always be practical or feasible to do a dawn service or what have you. So I love that sense of community. And it was a great rallying moment, I think, for Australians sort of after what, a month-ish of lockdown, isolation, lifestyle, to sort of come together like that. It was, yeah, it was special. In a hard time. It's been, it's been, a, hard, it's been a, a bloody hard time for Australians. Well, for everyone. People shouldn't, if people are feeling a bit of a pinch, you know, not only economically, but, you know, mentally, you're not wrong. It's not, oh, I'm being a pussy. No, it's, it's a hard time. And it's everything. It's, it's compilation of we've been in isolation. There's a pandemic. The social unrest currently, everything. It's, it's all right. Oh, shit, I'm a bit more stressed than usual. That's completely normal during something like this checking yourself and checking in with each other i think is most important for sure and you mentioned in passing there that you and scotty did have a video call afterwards which was posted on both your social medias just to show the great mateship that's unfurling between you two somehow we got more into being mates with the pm really hey sir how are you i'm good how are you mate oh very well thank you there are so many amazing stories in, in this country and I'm, I'm just yeah. pleased that um, more people have got to know yours. So good on you, mate. And it's good to no, see thank you. Thank you, I can't appreciate it more and, and thank you very much uh, for catching up and I look forward to seeing you in person once the COVID um, restrictions all lift and we're back to safety. Good one. See you later, Willie. Easy. Thank you, sir. I'll see you later. He's a lovely, lovely guy and I've, I've spoken in length about it doesn't matter where your political views sit. At the end of the day, he is the elected Prime Minister of Australia. He's the top dog and it's a great honor for me being able to be recognized from that level you know a digger chatting to the to the top and i i talked to the brigade commander of my work only the other week and he said i got a phone call with the chief of army <laughs> you know, is one of our diggers speaking the bloody pm <laughs> he's like i think so and i think everyone at that point would have would have felt like a bit of a come on willie don't don't swear or don't do this but it's been a, a, a real experience well i'm trying to actually put yourself in the mindset of when we spoke two years ago with microphones on, could you possibly sort of imagine this kind of exposure and these interactions you're having? It's not just about celebrity or a laugh like that, because it's also a reflection of the work you've done for a cause that's very important and close to your heart. I couldn't believe it, man. I still remember where I was when Mark Donaldson reached out to me 
just say g'day and hi oh, if you need anything, man, let us know. I just remember being like, holy fuck, this guy's a real bloke. I, you know, I don't know. During my sort of end of high school years, you know, when he received Victoria Cross and then into know my early career he's always been a bit of a, a god figure almost like a figure that doesn't exist a bit of a myth and then you know reached out to me and same with our hamish blake reaching out and i couldn't believe it at that point where now it's from you know everywhere and it's it, it's an incredible thing it almost re reinserts to me that i've done a good thing and a good job and now i get asked a little bit to reach out to people um, which i'm happy to do as well i don't know why you'd want a message from me but you know oh can you make a video message to my sons and my daughters or to my dad or whatever and i'm more than happy to do that stuff because i know how much it meant to me when it first happened and you know if i can give a little bit of that back more than happy to well that's the thing about dono he is just a really lovely guy underneath it all so that doesn't surprise me man the story i've told about dono before and he'll probably go bloody hell willie but I remember I was in ICU for a couple of weeks because I got so sick on chemo. I got like some sort of like infection and on chemo, that can mean catastrophic. And I was in ICU for a couple of weeks. I came out and I posted like an Instagram that I just got like back home. And the first person to call me was Donna just to see, oh, Willie, here you go. I'm just trying to see, here you go. And I think that sums up his character better than, better than any story or, you know, whatever you hear. That's the guy he is, a real caring guy, a dad, a father. He might be really well known for an action that he's done and a medal that represents that incredible action. But everything else is as heroic. He just lives and breathes being a fucking weapon. Um, ringing Willie at 10 o'clock on a Friday night just to see that I'm all right because I've just come out of hospital. And lots of stuff like that all the time. Absolute legend, man. Anything you ever, and anyone, whoever speaks to him, it's always a bit of a, you know, say you don't meet your heroes. Well, he's one you'd like to meet because he's a, he's a better bloke than you, you think you could be. I fully agree, mate. And finally, you are now Corporal Matthew Williams OAM. Congratulations. And I have to say, though, mate, it was observed on the Queen's birthday weekend how darn quickly you updated your post nominals on your Instagram handle. Yeah, bloody hell. Did you see the meme I put up? It was like fastest animals on earth. It was like cheetah 300 yes. kilometers. <laughs> It's like Willie changing his post nominals like 0.1 seconds. The memes are fine, thick and fast. And I mean, that's part of Aussie culture. Um, and it's a reflection of a honor well-deserved. I mean, you are this year's youngest OAM recipient at just 24. So well done, mate. It's very deserved. But also, you know, in the army culture, Aussie army especially, you're going to be kept grounded. Oh, yeah. But I make sure to push that back because you think the post nominals online were updated fast. You should have seen my PM keys. I'm a green tree at work straight away <laughs> on there I to recall a minute that I submitted the day before to put OAM everywhere throughout the minute. Um, we were doing a simulation exercise the other day, like an online sim, I guess, at work. And yeah, everyone log in with their name and rank and I'm there. Really, OAM. <laughs> Just, and, you know, if you can't, honestly, if you can't take the piss out of stuff, you've never, you've never accepted it. It was a, a real honor and a massive surprise. So yeah, it's, it, that's been one of those things that's just been like, wow, am I deserving? Am I whatever, you know? I don't know. That's not for my discussion, but it's been an absolute, absolute honor. So mate, tell me, leaving aside the shine and the gloss and all that fun shenanigans, how is your health? What have the latest scans revealed? And what does this mean for you work-wise with the Australian Army? So I'll start on the health, I guess. My last scan showed no change in the tumour, no change over the last couple of months. Uh, I've got another scan in, and so I was sitting on the fridge somewhere, but it's say four or five weeks. I do scans every three months. And, you know, the result we're looking for is no change. You know, that's as good as anything. These don't just disappear. We're looking for no change or slight change to show stability in the tumour. My health is pretty good on that front, I guess. 
And it's such a serious thing that at the moment it's pretty just sitting there. Because you stopped doing chemo a while ago. So now you're just sort of living life and just keeping an eye on it, making sure it's not changing. But ultimately you've, you've been that more capable, healthier feeling within yourself because you're not putting poison into your body regularly. Yeah. Chemo was insane. I did 13 months of chemo. I stopped that about 13, 14 months ago. And that was just so hard on me. Um, I've become immune to that drug, so I can't do chemo anymore. So there's 400 types of chemo around about, but um, only one that treats brain tumors. And I've become immune to that drug. Or at least I can't do bloody more of it now. So it doesn't help me at all. It just makes me sick. So no more of that, thank God. Yeah, I've finally got over, I guess, the feelings of chemo gave me the sort of, you know, chemo can affect you for the rest of your life. It's such a bloody, it's just poison. It's funny, you see nurses handling it with literally a hazmat suit on you and you're like, well, that's going in me. <laughs> if you're wearing gloves and goggles and a face mask and a bloody bib, yet I'm putting, I'm swallowing that, Jesus, that can't be good. But it's just one of those things. It's absolutely bloody terrible. So my health is pretty good. Career-wise, I am uh, medically separating from defence. I'm med medically discharging over the, well, it'll be by the end of the year, I'm guessing. Just, you know, the army has really reached out every possible way to help me with career with everything but you know at some point i've got an incredibly serious illness um an incredibly grim illness i guess as far as it's not getting better and best option um, for me at this point was i actually elected to medically separate the military was happy to keep me employed to keep me doing everything with of course restrictions and I guess those restrictions, which were rightfully placed on me, this bloody oath they were completely rightfully put on me. You know, they were there to look after me, not their own interest. It was, it was in my best interest. But as an infantryman, I bleed green and I bleed grunt. And if I can't shoot, can't drive, can't deploy, that's my career. That's where it lies for me. So I've chosen to medically separate. Yeah, and that's been recommended. And I'll be, I'll be out by the end of the year. So, you know, that's a, a chapter, I guess, I have opened and will close. Um, always a special thing to me, military service, and a lot of time of reflecting, I guess, on it and how I guess I didn't achieve everything in my career that I wanted to. Unforeseen circumstances. I don't think anyone would blame me for <laughs> for not making some of those goals. I think I have a I think I have a pretty good excuse for not making some of them with my condition. But it's still disappointing. You know, I trained for years and years for SASR selection and never really got the opportunity to, you know, reach my full potential as a soldier. Cancer got in the way. But now that, that's sort of what I try to implore on people and especially other younger diggers or just other diggers that, look, if you want to do it, do it. The worst that's going to happen is you go and you fail day one, but at least you know you didn't make it or you know where your strengths lie. The worst thing, and I don't want to seem like a bloody sad sap, but the worst thing is I didn't get to do it. I, I, if I went and failed, literally, well, I gave it a crack and I didn't make it. I didn't get that opportunity due to my condition. Uh, and that sucks. So really implore people if there's something, and it doesn't need to be that, but anything similar to that, that has a massive chance of failure, at least give it a crack because if you don't, it'll be a much harder pill to swallow. Don't put off life. Take it. Do it all right now. Which is what you have been doing in a huge variety of ways, mate. You said initially you found that purpose, that sense of purpose, right, in raising awareness and doing all this work around brain cancer research and fundraising, which was brilliant and sensational. And of course, brain cancer itself is not a topic you're letting go of, but the army's been a huge part of your life. It's been a foundation base. It's given you a whole plethora of mates and camaraderie. So how do you change? What's the next for you? And how has, I guess, your purpose, that sense of purpose changed over the past couple of years? And how does that influence what you're doing next? Mm. Well, I, st I still want to have a lot to do with defense, maintain those ties and connections and everything I've done. So a big part of me will move across into the private sector of defense industries and do a little bit of work there. And then 
a lot of it too is going to move into doing more stuff, I guess, almost for myself. As selfish as that sounds, you know, I've done so much in the last couple of years for charity, for others and, and everything of that. And that will never stop. But, you know, I'd like to still do my own goals of stuff and I want to travel here and go there. You know, there will be a period of, you know, not much work, I guess, from me. I've still got, I've never spent the money I got from Afghanistan because it's very easy to save money over there because I really got home and got diagnosed. So, you know, I'd, I'd like to travel with that um, experience things and then, you know, knuckle down into some defense industries work. Uh, and that's where my goal, I guess, will be in some ways and purpose will be you know, the influence I have whilst in the army is an amount. And then the influence I can still have once I'm out can be from that civilian aspect. And in many ways can actually be a greater influence because, you know, I'm not under the sort of embargo of all the, all the military stuff. So hopefully to make it a, um, a better place for diggers at the bottom. All the guys you see on TV and everything, they are high rank, very deserving of where they are. But, you know, it can be very hard to maintain that tie with the lads in the battalions, in the units, in the, in the squadrons. Um, and I'd like to, you know, almost put myself as a voice, you know, to the top. Scotty Morrison and with, you know, General Rick Burr and those guys as a representative of just, just the baggy ass diggers. We hold an event at um, the 7th Battalion. Um, notice Gabby Hayes night. Gabby Hayes was a guy killed. Well, he was in Vietnam and uh, didn't like the sergeants he had at the time. And he wrote in his will, you know, if I die over here, the sergeants are going to take all the corporals to the boozer and pay for their drinks all night. And the sergeant, you know, the sergeants have to pay. And gave a cheers of and it's, you know, to the, the queen country and the baggy ass digger. Um, so Gabby Hayes night's always a, always a good one, getting marched up into the sergeant's mess as the corporals, getting bought drinks and then, you know, doing the cheers to, you know, queen country, the army and the baggy ass digger. But, you know, that, those baggy ass diggers are the ones that keep the army moving. It always has been. And always will be, you know, those diggers, they're the, they're the fighting force. And I'd like to, you know, instill some of my own bit of pull if I've got any and own, ex, I'll say expertise, <laughs> inverted commas, but onto where I can influence that to just make it a, a better and more, more lethal force for them. It's been two years since we spoke with microphones, right? And I guess from my perspective, my life professionally, personally, has been very full, time's flown by in some sense. I look back and the fact that we spoke two years ago and go, wow, really? That went by already. But then someone in your situation, mate, where we're talking at the start of this about that 2080 split on the five-year mark of mortality and then the insignificant number you mentioned for 10 years, that two years has got to have a whole different meaning for you. How has your outlook on your life, what time you have left, how has that changed over the past two years and what is it today and how that drives you going forward? Yeah, it's, um, you think about time a lot, I guess. It's impossible not to in a situation like mine, but you try not to think about in a limited days, I guess. I have a lot better grade tumor than a lot and I'm in a pretty good situation. I'm, you know, mid-20s, male, young, fit. It's, I've got pretty much everything on my side to push that survival rate um, to the edge. Of course, I've got fantastic doctors and people looking after me and, you know, we're seeing no real change in the tumour, but it does, you know, that, that time, that two years has absolutely flown by. If those times are right, then yeah, it's a, it's a big chunk. And, you know, it's a hard time during COVID for everyone and it can be especially hard if you're like me, you're like this is taking up months and months and months of stuff I can't really do that I want to do, but then they can't let it just drive you crazy. So no, it's, it's not that easy, but look, I'll work, I guess, until the day I... I that he stopped so before over, I guess it's something I'm passionate about, you know, everything from, you know, personal goals and ambitions through to that purpose of raising money and all of, and everything that comes with that. You know, I like having influence on things and that'll be something that I'll carry on until I can't do it, I guess, anymore. 
well, Willie, you always have had that inspiring outlook of making the most of what's in front of you and you continue to do that. And two years in, I can see you've only got more resolve and sense of purpose and drive. And I'm sure actually a lot of that's been fueled by you have created all this energy, this awareness, you've had everyone rally behind you. And it's not just a matter of, say, personal achievements, but you've seen the community respond to the work you've done. That must be enormously gratifying. Oh, it is. It is. You know, I accepted the OAM not for what you see in the public eye, for what you don't see, what people haven't seen. People see me talking to the Prime Minister, people see me at work and all, everything else. What they don't see is the hundreds of messages I get a day that I'm replying to. The stress that a lot of this puts, uh, running charity events is bloody stressful. You know, handling other people's money is stressful. And all of that, all of it, that's why I accepted the medal, was the stuff you don't see behind the scenes that's hard um, and hard on myself. But the gratification that comes with, you know, helping guys out. And I get many messages of, oh, Willie, I got into the army, man, or I've got a date because of, man, you helped me out so much or whatever. Fuck, that means a lot to me, you know, helping young lads, young lads, young digs into defense. That means a lot to me. And of course, you know, it's not, oh, so to the mate, it's nothing I did. You were there doing the bloody training. You're there doing the push-ups, not me. (laughs) But it all means a lot to have the community, you know, a lot on my side. It's a fantastic thing and it's changed the complete outcome of how this journey could have been and how my health, my mental health could have been through this um, and the success I couldn't have had without them. Now, I can never thank you know, everyone enough unless I go and send bloody thousands of messages and honestly never thank people enough. And that's why I always, always um, implore people to reach out to me and whatever, um, in, any, in any respect, as I can get the chance to, to say thanks. I think we all feel immense pride at just hearing sort of that the lens at which you go to and how well-deserved that recognition is. Last couple of public-facing things we are seeing is that you're launching your own sort of side hustle passion project with The Willie Show, where we reference the fun studio you're in now. I know you did some speaking at primary schools this year as well. So you're keeping that engagement through not just the social media, but yet the podcast space, the school space. You're ensuring your story reaches as many people as it can. I think that's really important. Honestly, the kids I spoke to, and I'm sorry, Skomo, if you listen to this, but the kids meant more to me than all the all the stuff I did with the PM or whatever. And it was because of that it became about, but the kids got me into talk and I talked for bloody ages and they were such good kids. It was a Zoom meeting and they, had, they were such well-behaved kids and you know ask really open questions. And this is the best thing about kids is there's no filter. So they'll just ask anything that comes to mind and it was epic we had a great time and then i received a big booklet of letters that all the kids wrote to me and it was honestly went straight to the pool room that really meant a lot the podcasting and everything and it's it's i honestly love it you know so many and this is the whole premise of my podcast in the beginning was so many incredible people have walked into my life during this from all forms of life you know from military backgrounds to and surviving cancer and living with uh, medical conditions, everything. And it's like, holy shit, I wish, you know, and some of them don't have the platform I have. But if I'm able to, you know, use that in my advantage to tell these stories, it's um, it's fantastic. And I, I love that stuff. Public speaking is something I'm trying to do more of. Um, I find real pleasure in it. Um, I'm one of the lucky percent that I have no issue public speaking and I'm not bloody shy about it. Too much time talking shit in pubs to girls. That's why yeah, I'm lucky and that's something I'm trying to do more of as I go. And especially once I separate from defense, that'll be something I will definitely seek more and more. 
you have been tireless and unrelenting for the past couple of years, mate. And I can see that fire is not extinguishing anytime soon. Nah, I love this so. shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we could do another update podcast in another little while and see what else is happening with you. Cause I do see just through social media alone, how many people your story reaches and touches and to quote the unforgiving 60 guys who I know you were on recently, uh, you're changing the narrative on what terminal illness looks like. And I know I'm not alone in saying that I find you to be an inspiring young man who has accomplished a lot in such a short amount of time. And I think it speaks not just to your character, but what we're all capable of if we are driven enough. We can all learn a lot from that. So thanks for the chat today, mate, and for coming back on Life on the Line. No, mate, honestly, it's something I've, I've really wanted to do. I couldn't thank you more for, one, reaching out at the beginning and sort of starting my, my podcasting. I was like, oh, shit, this is something I can do as well. And I was like, well, oh, bloody, I might do a video on because I'm so bloody good looking. Uh, <laughs> but it's um, honestly, man, I can't tell you how much uh, it means to have me back on. Um, it was, you know, chatting to H online, offline chatting to H, and then, you know, sharing and sharing his podcast around. Um, and I thought, these bloody blokes should have me back on. Uh, so I sent you a message and, you know, it's, we, we made it work very quickly. But honestly, man, for everything you do for the vet community and telling stories, I was just on your socials last night about the, um, the Navy fellow that died at 95 that you'd done an episode with. Those stories are just so bloody important. Like I'm in the services and I'm a big, a big, big reach in the services and I don't know a lot of those stories, you know, and you'd think I would and it's, it's such a great factual sort of storytelling thing you've provided, man. And, it's, um, and I'm so blessed to be just a small part of that even from your least interesting guest, it's, um, it's an honor. So th no, thank you, man. Thanks, Willie. I appreciate that. I'm Alex Lloyd, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. We've had a few stories of soldiers battling cancer on this show. In addition to Willie's original interview, be sure to check out in Season 3, a captain's cancer battles with Hugo Tuvi. You're skinny and you're frail and you're fatigued. You're looking at yourself in the mirror thinking, this is not who I am. This is not where I expected to be. Also listen to the episode immediately before today's podcast. Number 84, Tim Reynolds. And the corporal in my protection team tapped me on the shoulder and said, sir, we've got a little issue. The machine guns, which are up on the towers around the compound, had been turned 180 degrees inwards to face directly at me. And we have another cancer story coming up with a Special Forces medic. Join us on Tuesday, 25 August, as Thomas K discovers the action-packed career of number 87, Jeremy Holder. I just got up and started running towards the casualties. There was rounds hitting in the dirt next to me from a machine gun. Referenced in this conversation was the late Rear Admiral Andrew Robertson. You can listen to the World War II, Korea and Vietnam veteran story in season one with Angus Horden. In number 11, Andrew Robertson, Volume 1. It really was the battle for Australia. And Volume 2. All the electrics have failed. We've lost communications. We've lost radar. We've lost everything but the engines are going. Willie also gave H a mention. The first three episodes with the 2nd Commando Regiment veteran were released in Season 3. I did a couple of follow-up episodes more recently this season. In number 54, H, Volume 4. You got fucking hours and your whole call sign's gonna be dead. So you either get someone in here or get us out of here. And volume five. But the suffering and the extent of injuries that the remainder of the boys had that lived in that crash, it was just fucking horrific. And don't miss number 36, Mark Donaldson, VC. People will die. It might be you, it might be your mate, it might be the brand new guy. It's going to happen at some stage because there's lots of bullets that fly around or there's, there's dangerous work that we do. 
Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. And our heroes, they still walk amongst us. Willie, as he's known, he has served us, and now we must do the right thing by him and so many more, because we're all in this together. But we always have been. We always will be. Here in Canberra, on this day, 75 years ago, in the midst of war, our then Prime Minister, John Curtin, called for every citizen to give an equal measure of devotion what our servicemen and women give every day. He reminded Australia that the original Anzacs handed on a torch, clenched and carried high, and that is passed on to every generation of Australians. This Anzac Day, it has been passed to us. And so together, with faith in each other, and guided by the lives and example of those who have gone before, we grasp that torch and we raise it high again, lighting up the Anzac door, lest we forget. Thank you.